we have a thing. <laughs> we have it. <laughs> oh no! Our glasses! They're broken! <laughs> it was literally. That <laughs> <laughs> sounded like a kitten's first attempt at a purr. Okay, well, welcome to Laidback Lush. My name is Michael, a former wine sales associate and vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I am WSCT Level 3 certified, and I am an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. And we do a little podcast called Laidback Lush, where we talk about our opinions on wine, as well as some of the academic research that's been done out there, as well as experiences that both sommeliers and ourselves have had with wine. If you don't already, please do follow us at Laidback Lush. At Laidback Lush! <laughs> We've been uh, listening to Panic at the Disco. Yeah, we've been practicing our emo vocals. So we've been practicing our emo vocals just a little bit. Which so we should... everything is going to be pronunciated in this episode, and that and that inflection <laughs> with with a. So please follow us at Laidback Lush, Lush on both Twitter <laughs> and Instagram in order to hear what oh. the gremlin inside of us is saying we, in an emo we, and edgy way. We are not funny. <laughs> we are no. so not funny. Like we're having fun, but. But we know that we're inflicting this on you, and we appreciate all of our listeners for actually listening to us in the midst of all of our infliction. But please do follow us on those. Uh, give us a shout out. Let us know what you're thinking. Yeah. Resident emo singer, Gabriel. Oh, no, he said the bad thing. <laughs> Don't say my last name on the podcast, Michael. Oh, the, well, you can edit, can it, edit out. it out. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys will hear a blank space. Or, or, or I'll just riff on top of it. I'll be like, oh, no, he said the bad thing. <laughs> Just every time that we have to edit it out, we have that. <laughs> that will be the jingle. That's the jingle. <laughs> That's the jingle. We don't just replace it with silence because that would be lazy. We put in a jingle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is already so far off the rails. Oh, All no, right, we're great. talking about China and Japan yeah. today and the wines that are emerging because these are emerging markets. They are not very established. China a little bit more so, but they aren't very established yet, but they're very exciting. Yeah, both of them have a long history of using wine grapes, mm -hmm. but not exclusively for wine. They, yeah. A lot of it has been for perfume or... A lot of the spirits production is more so like baishu in China, sake in Japan. Budoshu is a, is a, is a thing that'll happen. Yeah. But we are now seeing grapes being fermented into wine. Yeah. Rather and than fine traditional wine, no less. Uh, ways of fermenting grapes like you said for perfumery and stuff like that yeah which is it's really fascinating because neither one of these climates are particularly suited to growing fine wine grapes in the styles that we typically associate like bordeaux or or anything like that that's not necessarily true because bordeaux mm. is a maritime climate and they can have very wet years but you are correct in that both these countries well China's very diverse. But yeah. The well, it's also huge. Yeah, but the primary regions are pretty wet, and Japan is a literal island, so pretty yeah. much everything is is wet and damp and humid, and so that it creates a propensity for fungal disease. Yeah. So sprays are pretty common. There's a lot of ingenuity surrounding how they are trying to overcome that yeah. that those climate restrictions, those climate problems. Yeah. Well, so then why don't we kind of uh, narrow down a little bit and start speaking a little bit more specifics. So with, with China, I know that their history with it, it more than likely was introduced on the Silk Road. China is a very large country, very diverse bioclimates. Uh, you have mountain ranges everywhere. 
but you also do have some valleys. So as far as the situation of wine, which is trying to break into the fine wines world, what are we sort of seeing? Well, China is a very weird market right now. There is a huge spectrum of quality, all the way from very expensive fine wines to wines that I saw in a couple of articles called undrinkable. And that's a bit of an issue that is really hindering their market. It's kind of like Baishu. Baishu is mostly drunk within the country. Most Chinese wine is drunk within the country. And Chinese restaurants don't tend to really feature wine lists, Mm -hmm. even more. Some of the more new restaurants popping up are trying to get wines because these markets are starting to emerge. But for a long time, Chinese wine was thought of as very mediocre to bad. Mm -hmm. And so part of the reason is the Communist Party in the 1940s nationalized everything, right? And they started using all sorts of fillers and things to stretch wine to make more volume versus quality. Uh, Soviet Union did very similar things for their wine production. So the ramifications of that are still kind of being felt today. Well, I would imagine even that attitude ends up starting to be pervasive. Yes. Uh, So it's a little bit complicated now because we have a lot of foreign investors coming in because a lot of these people are seeing the potential in these really high-quality wines that are now coming out of China. So we have Moet and Hennessy investing. We have Remy Cointreau. We have Pernod Ricard. We have Torres. And we have the Lurton and the Barons de Rothschild families from Bordeaux mm. also investing. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, even if the Rothschilds are involved, that's yeah. it, pretty it, intense. It, it, these are significant investments. Like they are buying vineyard space, they are hiring workers, they're building facilities, and they are making, you know, quality wines. But the Chinese government is still the primary investor in these industries. I know I said last episode we're not getting into the politics of China, but it is important to know the Chinese economy is a very heavily mixed economy. People call it socialist. It's kind of socialist. It's kind of not. Um, capitalism is really creeping into their economy more and more and more. But it's my understanding it's, very, it's more capitalism on an international scale. Yeah, but it's also extremely tightly regulated by the Communist Party more communist in name than an actual political practice at this point, but it is still very tightly regulated by the government. So we are seeing a lot of government money being funneled into these regions. The regionality is also kind of a part of the quality problem. Some regions get a lot more attention than others do. And so there's some regions that have really high-tech equipment and facilities, and there's other regions that are kind of lagging behind. Mm-hmm. So they're still trying to figure out how to even grow their grapes in yeah. a challenging climate. You well, know? and I would imagine that you could have possibly quality wines coming out of those areas. But if you are not seeing the type of investment in some areas that you are in others, that would affect the eventual prestige of those places as well as just their ability to develop their Mm -hmm. own take on wine yeah so i don't want to get too bogged down in details in doing research michael and i both agreed we're just going to have to come back and revisit we're already we might be biting off more than we can chew by trying to shove japan and china into one episode yeah so we're trying to keep it pretty high level pretty general for this episode we are going to be going to the main regions of these countries but uh let's get into i guess some of the general wine trends of china so what out of that all that investment what's coming out of it now so my experience with at least selling to to people who were chinese by nationality 
was that they tended to have expensive tastes, but they also liked things to be sweeter. So there was even one particular practice, which I'm sure anybody from the wine industry would probably see as taboo, where they would buy a $200 bottle of champagne and pour Coca-Cola into it. I am dying on the inside a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, Just a little bit. But that being said, it's not an indictment. It's just the taste tends to run sweeter. And if you've Mm -hmm. ever had like plum wine or anything like that, you can see how the taste consensus on what alcohol is supposed to be is something that's supposed to be that sweeter flavor. Mm -hmm. So what sort of wines are being produced in China right now in order to both try to get into this fine wine marketplace while at the same time appealing to its own populace? So a lot of wines that are being drunk within the country right now are younger wines, so fruit-forward and food-friendly. Very fresh-tasting. The other really big style, and this is what is getting them kind of the international attention, is Bordeaux blends. Mm. China is doing, particularly the regions we'll be talking about, are doing just a ton of Bordeaux blends. And when you look at where the money is coming from, a lot of it's from France. Makes sense, right? Well, especially if they have financial backing, maybe they're getting other sorts of backing. Uh Yeah. So their most popular grapes for reds are going to be Cabernet Sauvignon. I believe that is the most widely grown grape in the country at this moment. Oh, wow. Carmenier, but in China, it is called Cabernet Gernicht. Uh, it's G-E-R-N-I. That's fascinating. Is there a reason behind that? So it was called that when the vines were brought to China. Then subsequent genetic testing show that it's actually Carmenier. I don't remember where the guy was from. I want to say he was from Germany who brought these vines originally to China. And yeah, it's just genetic testing. That's fantastic. So that again is Cabernet Gernicht, spelt with an N-I-S-C-H-T. Yes. Then we have Marcelon, which is Cabernet Sauvignon Grenache crossing. So it's a hybrid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Merlot. So these grapes are basically Bordeaux grapes. Are they growing any whites? Yes, they are. So Chardonnay and Italian Riesling are kind of the big whites that I found growing right now. Indigenous grapes are growing. Crossbreeds are being experimented with, and they are showing some promise, but they are not widely planted. They're very region-specific right now, and the quality, again, is kind of like very hit or miss. If you're familiar with hybrids in general, hybrids tend to be hard to get right. I'll say that. Well, and even a lot of the hybrids that ended up being imported in from the Caucasus Mountains, uh, Caucasus Mountains, uh, in in what is now modern day Georgia. What do you call me? Caucasus. (laughs) I mean, you're right, but come on. If you actually haven't read the the history of that specific word, it's not the best. (laughs) Um, Apparently, Georgians were considered the best by this one particular scientist and everything, and so it's literally... He was just like, this is the example of what a white person should be. <laughs> um, oh, Lord. Any, anywho. But that being imported, it was used for, for medicine. But those hybrids aren't getting as much attention in China. They are getting it in, in other regions, which we'll, we'll talk about later on. Yes. Speaking of regions, though, so that kind of wraps up where the wine industry is at in terms of the styles and the grapes being grown. Again, going into each region, we could probably do a whole episode and you'll find you know, a ton of other things, but we're trying to keep it broad. Well, especially since in both China and Japan, 
these are regions where they're just building facilities. Yeah. Like this is this is all experimentation. And um, I also want to say we're trying to give you wines that you are more likely to come across. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to kind of focus on what is being more recognized in the international scene. But anyway, so, so what about the the regions in China? Because yeah. you don't have as much of a canonized version of what China has to offer as you mm-hmm. do. Of course, a place like France or yeah. Italy or Spain. Yeah, because they're still figuring that out. I will say, before I even get into this, I have six regions listed, and there's many more than this. But these are kind of the principal regions, I guess I'll say. So we start off with the Shandong province. Uh, and again... Apologies for pronunciation errors in this episode, as usual. So the Shandong province is the biggest province in China in terms of volume. It accounts for over 40% of China's total production, which when you know how big that country is, that's a lot. It's a moderate climate, but it's very humid. There's a lot of fungal disease, and so it needs a lot of spraying. This is not Mm going to be one of those regions that's growing like all organic wines or whatever. I'm sure some producers are trying to go in that route as the industry is kind of curving in that direction, but eh, I don't think they can really manage it at the moment. It's kind of like Virginia. We just can't really do organic wine very well. We do yeah. have, we just have to spray. Um, even like the producers that I know are borderline biodynamic are still having to spray a couple of times a year just to keep disease off the grapes. So out of Shandong, you're mainly going to be having the Cabernet Garnished or Carmenere. You're going to also be having Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon, Bordeaux grapes, Bordeaux blends, right? So we then move on to Ningxia. Again, if you are a native Chinese speaker. Oh, yes, please. Let please, us know. Voice notes in our DMs. Please. It would be fantastic. We would feel so honored and yeah. we would love to actually be able to present these in a way that is honoring to the language <laughs> yes. and region. Yeah. Yes. So... This is going to be the second largest wine producing region, Ningxia. It is known for high quality wine. So this is going to be kind of a a very big reputational region. It has high diurnal ranges. And if you don't remember from our climate episode, a diurnal range is the difference between your day temperatures and your night temperatures. So a higher diurnal range means a higher difference between highs and lows. Which can be really fantastic for grapes. It's very good for grapes because it slows down ripening so they don't ripen too quickly, and that preserves the acidity of the grapes and helps keep them refreshing in the final wine that results from them. So this has long daylight hours, which again is very good for grapes because photosynthesis is good for grapes because they're plants. Uh, (laughs) Who knew? Yeah, and it also helps ripening. It's pretty low rainfall overall, and the vineyards are at 4,000 feet or 1,200 meters. So these are high-altitude wines. High-altitude wines tend to be pretty refined. They tend to retain a lot of acidity from cooler, you know, the higher you go, the cooler it gets, right? So this is just a very good region for grape growing. Again, we have a climate and terroir episode that we probably should redo, honestly, because our first couple episodes weren't up to really our standards now. But uh, re-listening to our episodes is always a harrowing task. But uh, if you want to know more about these climate influences, I would recommend listening to that episode. I mean, it's not like we're spouting wrong information, but I just feel like we probably want to present it in a better way now. Ningxia does benefit from a lot of support from the local government. That's part of what has propelled it into being able to be so successful on the international scene. We apologize if uh, you can hear the geese in the background. We forgot to close the door because it gets hot in here. But 
This is another region that's growing Bordeaux-style wines, and they actually have a classification system that is inspired by the 1855 classification of Bordeaux. So they also rank their top producers by grades, and that list is revised every two years. I didn't write down the main producers. I didn't really want to get bogged down in the minutia of what country or what region has what producers. Just know that they do rank their producers in Ningxia. Mm. So then we have Hebei. So the main regions within this province are going to be Hualai and Changli. Hebei is surrounding Beijing, which is the capital of China. Third largest wine producing region in China. It is home to one of the largest domestic producers, Great Wall. Uh, I did want to include Great Wall because Great Wall showed up in like pretty much every article that I read. Yeah, they are the, if not the biggest, they are at the very tippy top of the biggest companies in China. And I do believe this is a state-run company, if I remember correctly. So this will be run by the CCP. It produces a ton of wine. They do export. You probably, I think, are more likely to come across wines like this and some of the other really big producers out of China if you come across them. Just going into this, I have not seen Chinese or Japanese wines in any of our wine shops here in Richmond. No, I actually checked Wegmans just in case there was a few. There's nothing. There's not a Japanese or a Chinese wine section in literally any wine shop that I've been in. However, we weren't looking for that when we went to Second Bottle. That's true. I don't so, think they have any because I have been on their website a little bit. Um, I'm going to give them a call and just see if that's a thing that can happen. Yeah. Even importers, I have not seen some importers even offer that selection. So I don't know. But uh, regardless, Hebei does have various terroirs and that goes to everything from floodplains to mountain ranges. So this is a very diverse region. Doesn't really seem to have a set style of wine that they're producing. So I'm assuming this is probably one of those regions where quality can be hit or miss. So then we move on to the Heilan Mountain. This is an officially recognized appellation in China. This is the most awarded appellation or province in the country. It's on the edge of the Yellow River. And it lies in a mountain range marking Ningjia's border with Axla League Prefecture. So this being in the mountains, again, high altitude wines. So refinement, preserving acidity, grapes that are more tolerant of cooler temperatures. And it's a pretty dry climate here. Mm -hmm. So not as much spraying, not as much risk of fungal disease. So most awarded province in the country. Probably going to be making some pretty good wines if you come across a wine from here. I would recommend um, buying two bottles and shipping us one of them. (laughs) Yes, please. This is how you can do your part for the Laidback Lush podcast. The last region I included was Liaoning, and this region is known for its ice wines made from Vidal, which is, if you're familiar with Canadian ice wines, that's primarily the grape that's going to be used in Canada for their ice wines. Again, there are other regions, but they are not as renowned. They don't really have quite as high of a reputation. So that kind of does it for China on the whole. Again, we are keeping this pretty broad. Yeah. Now, China did actually have a hand in even creating the wine industry that is currently alive in Japan. The main thing was actually Buddhism at the time because they were using grapes for medicinal purposes. So you had this traveling monk whose name was Gyoki, and there's a lot of folklore surrounding him. Mm -hmm. But he was said to have established all these different temples, and one of them happens to be known as the Daizenji Temple. 
also known as colloquially the grape temple where it's literally a buddha holding a thing of grapes for medicinal purposes and that was supposed to be when you kind of saw wine originally in japan japan itself though it's it's very interesting because you do have a diverse climate but no matter where you go it's wet it's an island except for one place except for one place but we'll get into that yeah so you have different climates most of the place is covered in mountains like 70% of Japan is just mountain. Yeah. So there there are very few valleys that you actually will be seeing which can be used for for grape growing. But of the ones that do exist, you will find quite a few. There are a lot of different grapes that are grown here. There are some native ones that were imported. There's Muscat Bailey A, there's Koshu, but you also have some international ones that are going to be grown there, Chardonnay, Merlot, Pinot Noir, Cab Sauve, Delaware. So let's get into that. This is a different market than than a lot of other markets that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. But what would you say is kind of the way that you have to read a label from Japan? So Japan actually, at least for sake, they're very stringent on their sake bottles. You can learn pretty much everything you need to know from a sake label in Japan. Unfortunately, that doesn't always translate into their exports. But for we did have a sake episode. If you guys would like to yes. take a listen to that, we both enjoyed that episode tremendously. And it will help you navigate how to buy a sake bottle because you'll know the terms that are on it. Mm -hmm. So anything that is labeled as Japanese, see, Japan last century ran into the problem when they started producing wines was people are trying to import grapes from other countries mm, and, and just call it Japanese them. wine by producing it in Japan. And a lot of the time they were not very good quality. And that started to pollute the producers that were actually growing and cultivating grapes in Japan. Mm. So now you must show and prove that these grapes are harvested and fermented in the country. On the label, you will have the vintage that they were harvested, the region and the variety of grapes. So you will have your grape varietals on the bottles in Japan. There are over 300 wineries nationwide, fun fact. Uh, that is actually about how many we have in Virginia right now. That's fantastic. Yeah. So the styles in Japan of their wines are very interesting, actually. Natural wine in Japan is very popular. Again, natural wine is low intervention and typically low to no sulfites. We do need to do a natural wines episode. Yeah, just to explain it because yeah. it's, it's a little bit of a... It's not hyper-complex, but it's complex enough. Yeah. And it's a little bit controversial, depending on who you ask. But, uh, but natural wine is very popular in the country, and a lot of producers try to make natural wines. So if you know the Japanese palate, you know that they really appreciate purity of flavor. That reflects in their wines, particularly in the koshu grape, which is kind of the biggest planting. It's also a massive grape. It's also a massive grape, yeah. But they really like that simplicity and purity of flavor. Don't really go to Japan looking for... Kind of the inverse of China, Bordeaux style, these heavy, complex, intense wines. Well, and a lot of that more... has to do with the climate itself. Like, yeah. even if yeah. you've had Japanese beer before, the idea behind it is it needs to be crisp mm -hmm. and refreshing. Yeah. And so a lot of these wines follow that same trend of more light yes. and fruity yep. and floral and crisp with high acidity. And sweet and semi-sweet wines are very popular mm -hmm. in Japan. Michael kind of already went over the grapes, but let's dive into them with a little bit more yeah. detail. Just an overview. For our, I call these native grapes. They're not all technically native. A lot of these are hybrids, but it's kind of like the grapes that are what Japan grows that they have been growing that they aren't really necessarily importing from other countries. 
So we just mentioned Koshu. Koshu is kind of like the grape of Japan mm-hmm. at the moment. So this is a hybrid between wild Chinese grapes and just a Vitas vinifera vine, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it was imported from those Caucasus, uh, Caucasus mountains. Okay. Um, and it's a crossbreed between Venus vinifera as well as Vitus davidii. Gotcha. Which those all have scholarly articles on it. There was a lot of controversy about where this was coming from yeah. and if it was indigenous and la, 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 la. But it's one of the few that can actually deal with the humid climate that's yeah. there. So this variety has thick skins, and that is very good for the humidity. It means they are less permeable to mildew and rot than thinner skin grapes will be. The wines from these grapes are fairly acidic, tend to be very citrus and particularly white peach forward. Which you can kind of even tell from their color because they mm-hmm. they go from a green to kind of this, um, I want to say, almost like if you were to picture coral having a jewel tone pink. It's kind of like a blush yeah. blush color. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a very interesting color. And they have to do all sorts of stuff in order to try and mm-hmm. protect the flavors in them. Yeah. You can also get some lychee flavors and it tends to have a slightly bitter aftertaste. That can be lessened or increased based off of potential skin macerations in the Mm -hmm. production process, which moving on to common production processes for this wine are becoming more popular, particularly with the natural wine phenomenon. There is some experimentation going on with skin contact, white wines. I wouldn't say necessarily from what I read on the level of like what we would call or think of as orange wines, but Mm -hmm. there is skin contact going on. Yeah. A lot of them are wanting a little bit of the texture. Mm-hmm. So surly, though, is kind of one of the big methods that mm-hmm. is used for koshu production in Japan. And if you don't remember, surly basically means that you leave the wine on the spent yeast cells or the lees. Ergo, surly on the lees. And that will impart a little bit of a breadiness, but it all more than anything, it helps enrich the texture yeah. of the wine. Have you had a chance to ever try this grape? No, I have not. Uh, again, we can't get Japanese wines yeah. around here. If you know a way of getting this in, especially the Koshu grape and Muscat Bailey A, then we would be more than grateful mm-hmm. for that. This one in particular, they say that it can get even kind of like a smoky note in there. Kind of like a Chenin Blanc kind mm-hmm. of smoky? Okay. And it can also be with a lot of mineral content, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, that's... Yeah. That's kind of right up our alley. It, yes. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, moving on, though, uh, next up on our native grape list, we have Ryugan, which is mainly grown in Nagano. So this is an Eastern European grape variety, but it originated in China. Mm-hmm. This is also called within the country Zenkoji because it was cultivated around the Zenkoji temple in Nagano. So right. and that was a historical thing. So that's where that nickname came from. This grape has light fruitiness, citrus-like acidity, so again, a very clean, crisp, refreshing wine to drink. Then we have Muscat Bailey A. This was one that I'm very interested in. Um, This is a hybrid between an American grape and the European grape Muscat Hamburg. It's also a very large grape. It looks like a table grape, and it is actually sold as a table grape in Japan. It's not only used for wine. I'm curious because I wonder if it tastes like Concord wine. I despise Concord wine, just for the record. I also despise, oh shoot, what's that 
Um, muscadine. Muscadine. I hate muscadine wine. I've tried it. It's it's gross. I'm I've sorry. I've tried muscadine grape seeds before, like just as for medicinal purposes. I mean, they're good for you. They're good for you. Um, but I've, I've the seen wines are stuff, not, especially for vision problems. Actually, yeah, but the wines are not. No, the, the because wine they're is sugary, not great. <laughs> so, but as far as muscat bailier, I've I've seen people who have. So in order to mitigate the fact that they are such large grapes, they make sure to prune the clusters themselves. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. Because you need for all those nutrients to be filtered into what looks like no more than seven or eight grapes per cluster. Like they are really winding this down. Mm-hmm. If you've never been to a Japanese winery, these places look absolutely beautiful. Oh, uh, man. I was looking at some pictures yesterday making these notes and I'm like, oh, just take me to Japan. No, please. seriously. It's just it's a canopy of leaves oh. with grape clusters that are just kind of hanging down. Something I forgot to mention. So across the country... Thank you for bringing up the wineries. Pergola training is very common. Really? Yes. So if you don't know what pergola training is, it's also used a lot in the Piemonte because the Piemonte in Italy is also very wet. It is where you have this trellising that you hang grapes from. If you've seen like standard vineyards, yeah. you know, you have the wires that the grapes grow across. This is like it. You can walk underneath. Yeah, it's a it's a canopy. It's a canopy. Yeah. And the grape clusters hang down from the ceiling, essentially. That's literally all I saw when I was studying Yamanashi was just canopy, yeah, that, canopy, canopy. That, that's how they have to grow it. So the reason for that is airflow. Mm. You want the airflow. You want to not worry about mildew and rot setting in because when you have it on the wires and that, you know, more standard trellising... It's like insulation. It's, yes. You know, the leaves keep moisture in more. Um, it can cause more rot. For some of the international varieties, if you're, the region of Japan allows it, they do do the standard, you know, like gyo training. But know that pergola training is very common in Japan, as a side note. Anyway, back to the Muscat Bailey A. This is the most produced red grape in Japan. I don't know if it's the most produced red grape for wine, because remember, these are also used for table grapes. So... Planting-wise, yes, most red grapes. Wine production-wise, I was a little unsure in my readings of And that. it's outside of Koshu, it's considered the most tolerant of the climate of Japan. Yes. Big berries, fairly thick skins. This can be a young, simple, juicy wine. Again, probably going to be on the sweeter side just because of how big these grapes are. But this also can be oak-aged, so a little bit more what we might be used to out here in the West. Then... We move on to a very interesting little grape, Yama Sauvignon. This one is the one that I've been most interested in. Yeah, this is out of Yamagata primarily. This is a hybrid between mountain grapes. Japan has just a ton of indigenous mountain grape varieties. Called Yamabudo, yes. which has the tremendously meaningful translation of mountain grapes. Yes. These grapes were crossed with Cabernet Sauvignon and ergo Yama Sauvignon, which literally just means mountain Sauvignon. So these wines are full-bodied, they are pretty distinct, they have a very deep red coloring. I think I saw it compared to Shiraz, if I remember correctly, so if you're familiar with Shiraz, that is a very deep color. And a lot of earthiness on these grapes. I'm like you, I think this one, outside of Koshu, really caught my attention as one that I want to try, just because that's really up my alley of what I like to drink. But to close out our grapes for the native grapes, we do have Yamasachi. This is a frost-resistant grape. It would have to be. Yeah. Hokkaido, it gets as much snow as Earth gets. Yeah. Like, it's. I think it's in the top two cities. Hokkaido, if you don't know Japan's um, geography, there's a little island that is part of Japan, 
that is not where on the quote unquote mainland where Tokyo is. Mm. Hokkaido is that very northernmost also, little island. Also known as the homeland of the indigenous people of the Ainu, which if you didn't mm-hmm. know that Japan had an indigenous people, now you know. Yep. Pleokami. <laughs> they're they're I'm they're pretty there. I'm pretty sure they're in. That's what no, that that's what that tribe was. Yeah. Uh, so this is going to have some woodiness, some complex flavors. It's going to be tannic, and it's going to have sharp acidity. Another one that I am very curious to try. Michael mentioned we do have our international varieties: Chardonnay, Merlot, Pinot Noir, Kerner, which is a German grape, Cabernet Sauvignon. Then we have Delaware. Delaware showed up a lot in my research. Uh, this is a pretty popular grape. This is an American hybrid. This is a cross of Vitis estivalis and Vitis labrusca with Vitis vinifera, which is the standard European vine. This is used for table wines, and it can also make dessert wines. This, again, is a very, like, kind of concordy kind of grape, as with a lot of American hybrids. So, sweet wines yeah. from this grape. Now, where—so, we've gone over— a lot of the different grape varieties, and we've even briefly gone over where, where we're finding Koshu. Mm-hmm. And maybe starting with Yamanashi, what are some of the areas, the regions that are being recognized in Japan for grape growing? Because I know that at this point, Yamanashi even now has its own protected uh, designation. Word. designation. Mm-hmm. So, well, let's start with Yamanashi then. So this is high humidity, ergo a lot of pergola training, like you said in the photos you were seeing. Oh my gosh, it was so fascinating seeing just the different ways of them. Like, some of them were using paper umbrellas. Yeah, I saw that too. That was really cool. I think the the coolest one that I saw, I'm not sure if this, because I do like a little bit of oxygen exposure. I like some of those notes in it. But a guy used a uh, an old superconductor facility in order to create his wine. So, like, they have the air shower going in. He mm-hmm. was using the old clean rooms. Mm-hmm. And he used the processing valves in order to actually introduce nitrogen into the product in order to keep oxygen from getting in. Yeah. Which is just really fascinating. But yeah, high humidity. Mm-hmm. So they need that per uh, that pergola training, most yeah. certainly. So as for our grapes, it's going to be mainly Koshu, but you also have a lot of Muscat Bailey A and Delaware, as yeah. well as our international varieties. Yamanashi kind of has the most international reputation, at least from yeah. the impression I was getting. Well, and they produce 40% of wine yeah. coming out of yeah. Japan. They so. are overwhelmingly the largest producing, by volume at least, region. Then we move on to Nagano. This is a high-altitude region. This is going to be a cool climate, partially from that altitude. It is surrounded by the Japanese Alps, so it's, it is in kind of like a little depression in the Alps. So it also, from being higher up, will have that high diurnal range. Again, great for preserving your acidity, great for more refined wines. This is going to have rocky soils, which means free draining. So That's good. vines are not getting waterlogged, very easily at least, and it has pretty cool summers. So mm. very long ripening season, these grapes are able to just get full phenolic ripeness, but still retain acidity without losing too much of that to converting it into sugar while it's ripening. Uh, Chardonnay and Merlot are kind of overtaking the traditional hybrids that kind of were the predominant grapes there, and Chardonnay and Merlot are now basically kind of the predominant grapes in Nagano. We have Yamagata, which is a cool northerly region. This climate is very, very cold in winter. They get a lot of snow in Yamagata. 
The wineries are clustered around these lower plains with clay gravel soils that are free draining along the Mogami River. And they are sheltered by the O Mountains to the east and the Asashi Mountains to the west. So Asahi. Oh, yes, Asahi. Thank you. Yes. My, my reading skills are off today. So these mountain ranges are going to kind of create a rain shield. So it is going to help mitigate some of that humidity. We have mostly hybrids here, so Delaware, Muscat, Bailey A, and Niagara, which I'm assuming from the name, I didn't do a whole lot of research on this grape, is going to be out of Canada, probably, and probably uh, one of the American vines. Yeah, I didn't do any research into Niagara. I pronounced it as Niagara, even though it is Niagara, (laughs) in my, my, uh, when I was reading it. Niagara. (laughs) It, like, once you get used to reading Romaji at a certain point, you you, you get to speak in some of that English, yeah. So... (laughs) Uh, my favorite language. My favorite language. So <laughs> growers have converted some of the traditional pergola training into the vertical trellising with Chardonnay, Merlot, and Cabernet Sauvignon as they have increased in popularity in this region, and they are doing fairly well. Then we move to Hokkaido. Yeah, now this one is really, really interesting because it is between 41 and 45 degrees north. So this is that is super. Th- that's like on the edge of the northernmost band that you can grow grapes on. Yeah, that's that's right there. So yeah. the idea of this place, I mean, their ripening season must be just so mm-hmm. incredible. Like it would have to be harvest so that you were only getting super crisp acidic wines. Yeah. And on top of that, you have a cold ocean current coming in. It's called the Chishima Current. This region is going to be dry in the summer and autumn months. Very, very rare. This is what we were mentioning earlier. This is one of the few places in Japan that can be dry, which opens this up to being a wine-growing region for some of my favorite grapes. Yeah, so this is really good for Burgundy grapes, the Burgundy varietal. So Pinot Noir and Chardonnay do amazing here. Cool climate grapes. You're getting crisp, acidic, refined, probably some minerality at play. Uh, obviously, that depends more on the soil than anything. But you're you're getting a lot of refinement out of these wines. I really want to try some wines out of Hokkaido. I need to try yeah. a Pinot Noir out of Hokkaido because you know how much I love Pinot Noir. Yeah, well, I'm very curious because this is, even latitudinally, it, it's close to Burgundy. And so I'm curious as to how the character of these wines from the terroir would differ from that of Burgundy. Or if it would be similar, I'd be very curious to try that out. But that kind of wraps up our our regions for Japan. Japan, as we said, emerging market. China has had a little bit more time to get on the international. A lot more investment, yeah, to get on the international scene. From what I read, I don't really see anything from the Japanese government in terms of really giving any kind of great subsidies to the Japanese wine industry. I'm sure they're helping somewhat. Yeah, but. a lot of that happened back when the Meiji era was a Meiji era was just starting at the turn of the uh, 18th century to the 19th century and uh or excuse me the 20th century. It's the 1900s. So at the at the start of the 1900s, mm-hmm. you did see some promotion, some investment from the government yeah. because they're trying to modernize but as far as current day, it's it's kind of weird because like if you lease property from the government or something like that, you just have to have a compelling argument. Mm-hmm. This is actually the way that even the place I stayed when I was working in Japan was able to operate because it was an abandoned school. And they were like, hey, 
we want to use this abandoned property in order to grow food and to house people. Yeah. How do you guys feel about that? And they got a thing from the government. So there's there's just a little bit of a different system in mm-hmm. place. Yeah. But but I'm not sure how that plays into the wine industry. Yeah. Well, the natural wine lovers love Japan because, again, I know I already said natural wines are very popular, but natural wines are very popular in Japan. Yeah. They love the low intervention. They love the low to no sulfites. And because Japan is all about, as we kind of mentioned in the whiskey episode and the sake episode, they love to craft products. Mm-hmm. And terroir, particularly in Japan, is a huge thing. Even with sake and the whiskey that they produce, which people a, want to be able yeah. to taste the region it came from. And that translates to the wine as well, which is really cool to me. Yeah, I mean, there's even kind of a carryover because like from the native religions even, it's the idea that every single river, every single mountain it has its own spirit, as it yeah. were. And so the idea of that in in more of a modern sense is that there really is a character from each place which plays perfectly off of the idea of terroir. Mm-hmm. There's like this this respect that seems to come in place. And a lot of these different wine producers from the interviews I was watching, they seem to have that respect. They have their own reasons, of course, for going into it, yeah. their own unique styles, what they, they think should be the expression that's coming from these places. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be a very artful way of... Yeah. Uh, artful and diligent i would say way of approaching wine so saying all that to say who knows where the market is going to go next Mm -hmm. wine sales did bump during covid particularly wine sales from smaller producers actually Mm -hmm. took a pretty big bump during covid so i'm curious to see if maybe we can start getting more imports i'm sure if we went to the west coast we could probably find a lot more in terms of japanese and chinese wine but if any importer happens to listen to this podcast on the yeah. East Coast, please come to Richmond and please give us some wonderful Japanese and Chinese wines to try. I would love to try any from Hokkaido and also from Yamanashi. If you happen to know anybody uh, or you can buy from Mercian 98 Wines or Katsunuma Jozo, I would love that. That would yeah. be awesome. Because the more spread that happens, the more people get acquainted with this, especially in a place like Virginia, which is humid and hot yeah. a lot of the year. I feel like this is a style that could really pick up. So those are our little takes on Chinese and Japanese wine. We hope soon to be able to have an episode where we actually go into tasting some of these. But we will have to get our hands on them first. We should. We have discussed what I'm about to say, but we haven't discussed it. what I'm about to say at the same time. Mm. Uh, we had the request for the beer serving yes. glasses. We did an episode a while back about glassware for wine. We have not done one on beer, and I think this might be a really good time of year to do that because yeah. a lot of people are drinking beer right now. Yeah, it's getting colder. People want something a little bit more on the savory side, something yeah. that hits a little stronger. This is actually where I have most of my training in, because yeah. I don't ever mention it, but I am actually Cicerone. Uh, so. And <laughs> it'll be something that, you know, we don't uh, have to have as much information crammed into a single episode after the Wine Law series and now this episode. So maybe we should do that next and uh, try and see if we can find some really delicious Japanese wine to try Yeah. in the meantime. Sounds good. Well, thank you guys again for joining us. This is Laidback Lush. Please follow us at Laidback Lush on Instagram and Twitter. I have been Michael. I have been Gabe. Cheers. Cheers.